Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. First, I want you to know that the new issue of Brick and Elm magazine is available in stores and on local newsstands, and I'm really proud of this issue because the features in it are just so broad and varied and diverse. There's a, a fashion photo shoot. There's a deep dive into trash at the city landfill, not literally, but uh, a deep look at it. There's an article about boomerang residents, people who move away for a while and then return to Amarillo, and that's something we've covered pretty often on the show. And there's an oral history of the Panhandle Gives, which I put together for this issue, and I really love it. So grab a copy or read it at brickandelm.com. And as part of this podcast's partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Leslie Massey, Farmers Insurance, Amarillo National Bank, Wood Financial, and Amarillo Botanical Gardens. Again, read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com, courtesy of Northwest Physicians Group. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Hay. Andrew is the executive director of the Cultural Foundation of the Texas Panhandle, and that's a lot of words. It describes an entity that oversees Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and the Texas Panhandle Heritage Foundation, which produces the Texas Outdoor Musical. I hope you got all that. Before that, Andrew was the executive director of Amarillo Symphony. And before that, he was immersed in philosophy and theology as a seminary administrator who received his PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And so for a guy who is in charge of a history museum, Andrew has a really weird career resume. And that's one big reason I wanted to talk to him for the podcast. So here's Andrew Hay. Andrew Hay, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Uh, appreciate you and all you do with this podcast. It's, it's, I'm a big fan. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for uh, listening to it. I should probably give a disclaimer before we start in that you are associated with Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, which is a sponsor of this podcast week in and week out, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I'm also on the board of trustees for the museum, which gives us a whole lot of weird entanglements. Yes. Uh, so I just want to make that clear to everybody at the beginning. It's good good nepotism. Yeah, right? not right that it will gates. impact <laughs> any part of our conversation. <laughs> not at all. Um, but I want to start with you the same way I start with all of my guests and just ask you why you're in the Amarillo Canyon area in the first yeah. place, because I know that's part of the story. So yeah. how'd you end up here? Yeah, I'm originally from Littleton, Colorado, so grew up just north of here, about fourth generation uh, from the metro area of Denver, Mm -hmm. and uh, ended up here a series of events. Uh, My wife and I, we were living in Scotland overseas and uh, just got an opportunity from uh, actually a local church to come start an educational initiative, and my wife's oldest sister was living here, so we had visited Amarillo. Okay before when we were actually living in the UK. And so we would come here and of course, family was a huge draw, a job was, but we just loved the the simplicity of, of the high plains and mm-hmm. we fell in love with it. And so we had an opportunity and we, we jumped on it. Where were you in Scotland at the time? I was at St. Andrews. Okay. So uh, for the golf aficionados out there, I uh, got to live in uh, St. Andrews, went to the University of St. Andrews. So I was finishing a doctorate there and I got to play golf. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was a hundred pounds a year to play seven courses, and one of those was the old course. Wow. So that was an added treat. Uh, but over there for education, uh, which time that's near and dear to our heart, we we think of it often. We try to get back when we can as well. Yeah, I, I know your path to being in charge of a, a history museum has been a little bit of a winding <laughs> one. 
Um, just, I mean, and just you talking about getting your doctorate mm-hmm. uh, in Scotland. Tell me, tell me about your career path. I mean, I guess starting when you were, I don't know, graduating from high school, yeah. trying to figure out what you wanted to do. Like, what was the goal back then? Yeah, you know, actually, I didn't really see a good path, and and we can certainly get into you know the clear path is a very winding one where I can't really see the next bend, which yeah. is exciting, but. Uh, it, it started with after undergrad, uh, I was working in insurance actually, uh, that was my dad's trade and mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well maybe I'll take over the business and got into that and in the Denver area. So. Yeah. In Littleton. Okay. Uh-huh. And, um, so I thought that, okay, well maybe that's the path of least resistance seems interesting. You get to work with people, you get to help people. I found that fascinating. I still have a lot of respect for people that have to get on a phone and help people with insurance and all that. And, um, uh, just really felt a, a call, uh, by God to go to seminary. Uh, I grew up just up the hill from Denver seminary kind of all mm-hmm. my life and, and had known the institution, uh, just growing up. And I remember visiting, uh, one day, just the seminary. I think I sat in on a philosophy course. I was like, this, this seems right up my alley for some reason. And, uh, um, really felt called to the academic side of the business. And so pretty quick after that, I entered seminary. Uh, my wife and I had been married about a year, uh, my wife, Kendall, and um, went and got a philosophy degree, a master's uh, at Denver Seminary. And it was during that time, I didn't feel called to ministry, mm-hmm. really. I felt called to the the classics and the great books and uh, all the big questions in life. And Philosophy degree doesn't yeah. open a lot of doors. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, the, the old adage is... In fact, it, opens, it might close some doors. Right, it opens the door to a barista, I guess. <laughs> you know, that's the joke. But uh, so just uh, going through that time is really formative time for me going to seminary. I, I had great professors make met great people. And I remember one of the uh, professors, uh, Craig Blomberg at Denver said, well, have you, you know, thought of a PhD? I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I'm cut out for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it put something in my head. And then, uh, my wife's, uh, childhood friend, her husband went to the university of St. Andrews to do a degree there. And, you know, he said, Oh, it's, you know, it was incredible. You know, I did it in three years We're at seven here and all those things. And so, uh, applied to, uh, you know, kind of the, the usual suspects over in the UK and was accepted, uh, to a lot of institutions there. And this will sound really shallow, but, uh, for anybody that has moved overseas, uh, with a wife who happened to be pregnant at the time mm-hmm. too, uh, you're going to find the place where she's going to feel best, yeah. you know, or your spouse is going to feel best. And so we actually ended up visiting, St. Andrews is the only sunny day. We looked at all the other universities and we happened to go to St. Andrews, you know, right on the the East coast of Scotland on a very sunny day. And if you've never been there, it's, it lives up to the hype. I mean, Mm -hmm. 100%, it's like Aspen by the sea, you know, it's a very, it's a touristy town because of the golf course. You've got a 600 year old uh, university, you know, it's Gothic, it's a small fishing community and there are a lot of Americans there. And so, uh, we just felt right about that. Well, my wife said, we're going to yeah. feel right about that. <laughs> and um, so we moved uh, over there in 2009. And I got a further master's, a master of letters there in theology and the arts. Okay. And then, that sounds like a really British sort of yeah, thing. It, what, yeah. How, how does that ma- compare yeah, to it? It's weird. It's weird when people say, what, you know, what are your degrees? And it's like, master of letters. Yeah. You know, it's a little snobbish, but uh, it is what it is. Um 
But it was, you know, it's actually something that connects for me and Amarillo. We felt uh, automatic community there. And there aren't many places where you have that. I think the the only other place I felt that is Amarillo. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what got us through, you know, lifelong friends um, from Scotland that we still connect with uh, over and over again. So uh, went on to do the PhD in systematic theology, uh, which was uh, an incredible experience, not because I contributed anything earth shattering to yeah. the field, but I think one thing I took away from the time that I see in play now, uh, just just for me, is learning to distill complicated situations and information. Um, that, I think, is my biggest takeaway yeah. from my time overseas. Which is what systematic theology is, yeah. is taking this giant, you know, Old and New Testaments and, and trying yeah. to find sort of a, a common path. Yeah, finding a, finding a framework uh, theologically for uh, interesting and difficult topics, arranging them in such a mm-hmm. way that you get the the right weight, uh, through abstraction and, mm-hmm. and, uh, explanation. And, um, I love doing that. I still love doing that. I don't do that formally, you know, with systematic theology, but I love doing that, you know, reading history or, or my current position at the museum saying, you know, there are these many, many things, you yeah. know, how do we, how do we speak about them in, in the simplest terms with the most impact? So did, did you still think as, as you were pursuing that PhD, uh, as you're getting your master of letters, like, did, did you think, you might end up in some sort of an educational uh, yeah. pursuit, you know, maybe teaching at a seminary. Yeah. So what happened was we uh, moved back and lived actually in College Station. So we lived in College Station for a year. Uh, my mother-in-law wasn't doing well. And, you know, I was like, I'm not going to be the guy that yeah. keeps his wife here while maybe things aren't going well back home. So we moved back uh, to uh, the States and uh, I taught a little bit, you know, seminar stuff at Baylor, and then uh, got a call from local pastor here saying, you know, do you want to come start a a seminary mm-hmm. in the High Plains? I was like, well, that's crazy enough, yeah. you know. I mean, that sounds fascinating. Again, we knew Amarillo a bit, and we're like, well, this seems to be our chance to kind of really establish ourselves somewhere with our young family. We had two children at the time, and um. So we moved here and about a year later, uh, we had partnered with Denver Seminary and I had about 40 master's students that I was, you know, teaching church history, systematic theology, but also fundraising, leading a team, you know, so really cutting my teeth in a way and educational, but also doing it in a different kind of ground up approach, Mm -hmm. seeing everything that takes to do postgraduate education. So yeah, you know, a series of events uh, after that led to me. Uh, leaving that position, um, you know, I resigned from that position. And uh, right after that, I, I got a call from a board member at uh, the Amarillo Symphony. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't feel like I've ever stopped pursuing the needs maybe of education or students in a way. It's just it feels like opportunities arose mm-hmm. that seemed good to to pursue at the time. So what happened to that seminary? Uh, I think it was, it was pretty well taken online uh, after that, which, you know, looking back, there was some heartache there. It was, you know, I felt like it was time for me to move on. There was Mm -hmm. other opportunities. Um, but looking back, I think it was probably the right decision by Denver seminary to do, you know, of course this side of COVID you go, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. It was a moment where, you know, when I was in it, um, I had to learn, uh, a lot of lessons still, still obviously do every day, but 
you know, as a leader, you got to hold some things really loosely mm-hmm. and uh, learn to adapt when you need to. And, um, and of course, you know, I wasn't really calling the shots on some of those things. Some of those decisions were coming from a, a main campus and you have to kind of go with the, the, the tide. But again, an opportunity arose for me to, to pursue some different things and maybe cut loose a little bit from uh, education for yeah. a little bit, which I think was good looking okay. back. It's, I, it's I, I feel like thinking about your resume, um, <laughs> you know, when the symphony is looking for a new executive director, <laughs> you can't speak from the, the symphony side, but no. what equipped you to make that sort of career change? Cause it doesn't feel yeah. like it matches. No, it, well, it's, although so they, I mean, I, that's when I met you was when you were in that position yeah. and like, you seem to really enjoy it. We're good oh, at it. Loved so. it. Loved my time at the symphony. You know, it, it happened that the board member called and said, we're looking for an interim executive director. I went great. You know, cause I had a few thoughts about, maybe starting a, a public ethics uh, institute hmm. uh, around here just for public discourse. I think that's something that's sorely lacking. Uh, as, still yeah, probably needed. Yeah, yeah. You probably always needed. Yeah. Um, didn't work out. That's fine. But the board member said, hey, you know, we're looking for a interim director. And I said, well, you know who you're asking, right? I'm not a, I'm not a musician. Uh, I'm a casual lover of the symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, well, we, you know, we, we need someone to kind of stand in the gap till we find – Somebody was like, oh, that's, that's great. You know, it's interesting, though, when you get placed in those situations, sometimes when you can see the horizon pretty quickly. Uh, I saw that pretty quick at a, a symphony. And I think that happened because I I just love building things. I love trying to guide things. Uh, I love helping to lead things, uh, like the symphony in this case. And, of course, as a civic institution with such history, um, I took it very seriously. Yeah. Again, I made no bones about it to the people I worked with. I'm, I am not a musician. I'm not going to tell you, you know, that, well, Mozart's ninth was a little pitchy, you know? Um, but it wasn't that far from academics in a way you had a highly skilled group of people, the musicians, the orchestra itself, uh, with its leader, the music director, um, that you had to help guide and, and, uh, bring out the best characteristics that they have. That's pretty much uh, faculty work and student work as well. Um, so I treated it a bit like that. I uh, had the honor of taking it through COVID years, right. which was everybody, um, you know, feet planted firmly in midair at that moment. Give, give people an idea of your tenure at the symphony. Mm-hmm. What year did you start? It's 1819 to 21. Okay. And where did that fall on uh, Giacomo's tenure there? Had he already been hired? Yes. It when was, you came in? It was his last years. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, as music director uh, of the Amarillo Symphony, and um, how he and I had to speak pretty much every day during COVID. I mean, we were both yeah. like, "What are we, you know, what are we going to do here?" And he had a great vision for uh, continuing to serve this area with music. Um, you know, I had to bring in the the nuts and bolts to that of okay, how do we how do we offer digital performances? What will that look like? What does it cost? You know, et cetera, et cetera. How are we going to continue to pay people? Our, our goal and the board's goal at the Emerald Symphony was we don't want to uh, do pay cuts, you know, we, but we also don't want to have mission deficit yeah. as well, uh, which I think everybody had that thought across mm-hmm. the nation at that point. You still want to serve people, especially as a nonprofit in the performing arts. How do you continue to serve and be relevant and and inspire people even in a very uninspirational moment, uh, like the COVID pandemic. Before we talk about, you know, the end of, of your career with the symphony, I want to hear just kind of what you learned 
about arts in Amarillo because yeah. it's, a, it's a common conversation that I have yeah. uh, with the depth of the appreciation for the arts here, uh, the support for it, yeah. the talent here. You mm -hmm. were exposed to all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, the really neat thing about being at the symphony uh, squarely in the performing arts world was uh, really just the ability to look around and say, yeah, oh, this is homegrown talent. It's, it's, in, it really is incredible. And maybe it's, if you've been to the symphony, people always say, Oh, these are our musicians. I'm like, you know, being in that business for a time and being able to go hear other orchestras and compare notes across the nation, the Emerald symphony is really, really unique. And I think you could probably say that for a lot of the arts mm -hmm. organizations in this town and I think we take for granted a lot of that. I think we're always competing. Even now, as we get to the museum, you know, we're competing for people's attention mm -hmm. and certainly something has been lost. And I'm a, you know, I'm as guilty as the next person about being able to consume anything I want with my phone. There's something, uh, wonderful and, and incredible when you, uh, are forced to embody a moment and be present mm -hmm. in a very transient moment. You know, the, the symphony, the scores that you hear in the symphony, uh, when they play at the globe news center, uh, are transient. They're, they're automatically transient. So you have to be there yeah. to experience that. I can listen to a recording, but I could listen to London Philharmonic all day long. Right. And it's not the same thing as consuming something in the moment there. And I think that can map onto a lot of the arts in this area. And we're just so fortunate to have such low hanging fruit for the arts here. Uh, however you want to say that, yeah. you know, the physical arts or, or otherwise, but um, I always, I loved that. I loved going to still love going to the symphony. My wife and I still go, but uh, I deeply miss going to those rehearsals because it was that work and process of creating the art. And that was something special to witness as well. So tell me, uh, sort of about the transition that happened after that, because yeah. you made it, you made another jump. It was yeah. still nonprofit to nonprofit, but, yeah. but doesn't quite make sense yeah. on paper. So now again, you know, another opportunity presented itself. I, I'm, I'm kind of the type of person that, you know, opportunities could come across the desk and I'll, you know, I'll say, Hey, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Let me talk to my wife about it. There was one, uh, Walter Windler, Dr. Walter Windler at WT, uh, took me to lunch one day and said, Hey, you know, I'm putting together this thing called the cultural foundation of the Texas panhandle. And, you know, it's going to be effectively co-management of both panhandle plains historical museum and Texas outdoor musical. And we're looking for an executive director to head that up. Um, CFTP, so many acronyms, uh, mm -hmm. will also be, um, you know, a board that uh, is kind of statewide representation to curry influence and favor uh, down in Austin and elsewhere for these in institutions and for, for West Texas A&M University. And, you know, he just kind of put that out there. He wasn't very direct like, Andrew, you should apply. But right. it was, you know, we're looking for somebody and it seems like an interesting opportunity. And so I, I've reflected on that, thought about that for some time. And um, decided to apply. I thought it was something fascinating. And it was, in a way, getting back into higher education, which mm -hmm. that's kind of my default mode as well, even though not squarely me sitting in front of students and teaching them, but it is benefiting people in this region. And so time felt right. Uh, the symphony was on good footing, is still on great footing. Uh, I know my predecessor uh, at the symphony is doing a great job, yeah. you know, and I was grateful to see, I, I knew him actually before 
he became the executive director there. So looking back, I'm like, it was a good, it was a good choice. It was a good time for me to allow fresh leadership, I think at the symphony. Um, so I was grateful for that and that board. And, uh, so then stepping into this new role, yeah, huge, huge job. And again, just humbling to be able to help guide the museum and Texas, the two storied institutions in this area and in the nation as well. I mean, I'm, I mean, I pinch myself pretty much every day. So tell me about that process. I mean, there's, there's some overlap between Texas, let's say, yeah. and the symphony. It's yeah. performance based. It's music. It, um, there's a nice theater where it takes place, yeah. all those kinds of things. Uh, the museum component, you know, was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what it's like for you, you know, stepping foot into, uh, a building mm-hmm. with so much history, you know, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the historical society is more than hundred years yeah. old. The museum is almost 90 years old, yeah. right? 92, the building, 92. It's more than 90 years old. Yeah. Um, a lot of the staff, yes. you know, predated you. Oh yeah. And, and so you're coming in new, mm-hmm. um, Hey, we've got this guy from the symphony. He's going to start running things <laughs> over here. Tell me, tell me what that's like to step into something that literally is about history, but yeah. has so much history that you've not been a part of. Yeah. I think, um, the way I approach some of these shifts, you know, is that, uh, there'll always be an excuse for me not being, uh, I didn't get my degree in the museum field, mm-hmm. right? I didn't get my degree in performing arts. But again, when you talk about these very intricate and complicated nonprofit organizations, cause they are each in their own way and the symphony and everything in between, I've prided myself on at least a few things. One, uh, it's the people I work with. I mean, there's no way any of this, even if I was just teaching systematic theology, uh, I have to lean on other people and and they're going to have strengths where I have weaknesses. Um, and that is the case now. I work with incredible people. So it makes it not easier, but there's a lot of trust there and the ability to say, okay, now we can take it to another level. I think that is the first one. The second for me again is is just getting back to trying to take complicated uh, situations and, um, information in this case with the the museum, especially, and trying to distill them into layman's terms and say, why should people matter about, you know, why should they care about this? Um, especially when it comes to history. And for me, it's easy to obsess over the history here mm-hmm. because I find it now as something that is going to be part of my history and my kids history, my grandkids' history. Um, I may not know every in and out about the history of the high plains. I don't know anybody that does, but to be able to go down and into the, to the storage area of the museum and say, you know, this, this history is incredibly alive and I get paid to obsess about it yeah. and then tell people they need to obsess about it and support it as well. I think it goes a long way. It certainly goes a long way and it, it helps at least with the the ins and outs, the the politic, you know, and everything else about running a museum in the United States. So it's been a a fascinating transition, but I feel like I've done it before. Okay, if that makes sense. The one of the things that strikes me is is interesting about your journey is that you know you were educated in Scotland, you know, where every building was built about <laughs> nine hundred AD. <laughs> you know, the bricks on the roads right. are four times as old as the United right. States, right? <laughs> Um, you know, you're studying systematic theology, which means you're immersed in manuscripts that yeah. are, you know, yeah. t- centuries old, let's yeah. say, a uh, couple thousand years. And then you come here to a museum that's celebrating the history of the Panhandle Plains, where some of the artifacts are, yeah. you know, 1894. Or, 
<laughs> and that history, when I visit Europe, the history yeah. of this area seems so shallow, I mm. guess. And yet when you're here and you're in it, I mean, those stories are so fascinating. And yeah. I, I wonder if like what your career tells you or, or what you've learned about how to think about history, because yeah. you think about it in very different ways in the, the different things yeah. that you've done. I think, you know, I, oddly, I kind of see it opposite. I think being over in the UK and Europe, you know, the continent itself, it is incredible encountering that history, even in, in illuminated manuscripts. You're like, wow. Oh, yeah. But there's such a disconnect for me because I don't, the difference here, the regional history here seems so deep because it's so fresh. Maybe it's okay. just, it's just behind us in the horizon, right? I mean, the high plains are quote unquote settled, but they're never really settled, right? That's the strange thing about at least this part of the country. It's, it takes a lot to live here and it takes a lot to continue to live here. And so to me, it feels like I can see those fingerprints uh, a lot easier on some of the artifacts at the museum or some of the stories we know of this region. Whereas I do go to Europe and I, let's say you go to the British museum, which is overwhelming in mm -hmm. what it has, but I go, wow, the Elgin marbles. I go, okay, but you know, it doesn't really connect with my family or my friends' families or, so it's just a little different. And then the interpretive aspect of that too, like you can interpret manuscripts and see what they're saying. And there's something hallowed about that. And it's wonderful. But you know, I see an interview with Charles Goodnight and I go, oh, that's not that long ago. Yeah. And you know, this was such a different place just a few generations ago. And something about that excites me at least as much as just Western Civ uh, that you get in the UK or elsewhere. So I don't know. I think it's just so much more personalized. I'm sure it's personalized for somebody over in the UK, but even then, you know, uh, my colleagues back, back in the UK are like, well, you know, that was 2000 years ago. Who yeah. cares? You yeah. know? So I think it's maybe the history here that is found at PPHM is, is very personal and present uh, for a lot of people. And, and um, I hope they claim it. I mean, everybody has a right in this area to claim that history in some way. I want to let people behind the curtain a little bit uh, when it comes to Panhandle Plains, because I think most of my listeners will have been there and walked through it, seen the exhibits, mm -hmm. they're familiar with it. Um, never think of it in the terms of the way that you think of it or the curators think about it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've learned just being on the board is that you, you think of a mu museum as like this static place, a history museum. Well, right. it's just got a bunch of old stuff. Right. It's always going to have old stuff. Right. Old stuff doesn't change. Right. Uh, and I've learned like how dynamic it is because you're constantly thinking about, okay, what's the next exhibit? Yeah. What items from our archives, you know, kind of conform mm -hmm. to this idea that we've mm -hmm. got. For, and so tell me about just managing it month to month, year to year, what it's <laughs> yeah. like. It is, you're absolutely right. Um, it never stops. Uh, there is so much happening at that museum, whether it's collection care, uh, rolling out a new exhibit. We're always kind of rolling two years in front of us uh, when it comes to what exhibits, what programs are we doing? I will say probably uh, the most dynamic part of the museum is education, uh, hmm. our educational engagement, the programs that we offer to 62 ISDs in the region. Um, that to me is, uh, we doubled our numbers of, of K through 12 students that visited the museum this year. And so uh, that is an overwhelming, in a good way, um, dynamism that this museum has. So managing it again is, you know, you try to decentralize, uh, you try to build those departments and, you know, you 
delegate as far down as you can, right? Decisions made mm-hmm. at the lowest level possible. That's the goal of, of something like at least this museum so that uh, I'm not having to go, well, you know, next week we're going to do an exhibit on Dali. It's like if that's – that would be a problem. And the, right. <laughs> the public would not like that. Uh, I'd just do a bunch of exhibits on like – cool old guns or something, but that, that'd be pretty boring. You have to really try to cast a wide net uh, for the public, for public interest. And so again, uh, it takes a lot of people, a lot of wise, smart people that are on the staff at PPHM uh, and that are experts bringing their, their ideas and all of us getting together and saying, okay, what are we, you know, what are we about this next mm-hmm. year or the, in two years? What do we want to aim at? The problem is, you know, you you can keep just chasing a bullseye, though. So you really do have to be intentional about what are we doing? What are the opportunities we can leverage? And a lot of it is, uh, you know, we are accredited uh, nationally, one of about 900 museums out of 30,000 nationally that are accredited, like the Smithsonian, the Field, the Met, all of those are accredited like we are, where we're able to uh, get traveling exhibits of high quality. So, okay, you know, what exhibit do we want to have coming through here in the next few years? I mean, that's all important kind of public stuff, but really the never ending work is, you know, behind the screen. Like you said, it's, it's, you know, people that uh, are deep experts on caring for the collection. We have a lot of ethnological items from uh, many tribal nations that have been given to the museum just to take care of. Absolutely. Not necessarily stuff that the public will see. No. And, and we take that incredibly seriously. We have uh, consultations with say the Comanche nation actually just came not long ago to ensure that we're respecting and taking care of these items. We have a great relationship with them. Uh, Panhandle Plains Historical Museum is also the museum in this part of the nation that if anything's found on state or federal land, it comes to the museum and we hold it in trust. Mm -hmm. Um, which is wonderful and terrifying. I mean, right, it's, yeah. it's, you know, we really do have to take that seriously. And so the curators, the collection managers, uh, everybody, you know, is, um, always has to be on, always has to be worrying about these items, but also saying, but how do we get them in front of people? The ones that are, are worth getting in front right. of people. And that every museum has that problem uh, of relevancy and, and really changing with the times and saying, we need to, we want to capture your interest for your benefit. So I, yeah, I want to talk about that because that is something that people probably don't think about is that when you're a history museum, Mm -hmm. history is always changing. I mean, today's going to be history in a week. And, and so the idea of what you are covering is constantly in flux and, and you have to think long-term, you know, not just what are we going to do exhibit wise this year, but where's this museum going to be in 10 years? What do we need to do to make sure this museum is still around in 80 years, yeah. you know, when there's going to be an exhibit about the year 2023 and mm-hmm. the things. And and so when you think long-term as the the shepherd of this collection or or the person who's, who's kind of managing that, where do you see the museum going? Like, how do you think about the future? What does it need? What, what do you want to see happen? Lots. I mean, if you were just talking about the collection itself, we have to be flexible enough as an institution to receive the future as well, right? The, the future history, mm-hmm. uh, just like you said. And so actually- and There's a hundred years worth of artifacts oh, coming your way at some point. There, there right? is, you know, and that's, and we, we love that. I, I love that we're able to, the board is ultimately, the uh, Panhandle Plains Historical Society is ultimately able to look at the recommendations from the staff for what we accession. Um, and say, look, there's a gap in the collection. We need to have X, Y, and Z cover that gap. We don't have that. 
but also really positioning the museum in a way where we really are trying to get away from a lot of the, especially in the archives, take archives, for example, uh, getting away from those uh, textual items, which are important, but we know, you know, by the time we start collecting in another 10 years, it's going to be digital items, right? Right. Like we're talking right now, right? This is a record of, you know, some, some fool that works at the museum talking yeah. to Jason Boyette, but it is somehow something of a snapshot of 2020, the end of 2023 or into 2024. Does it need to be in an archive somewhere? You know, probably to, to give a slice to some future researchers, some future individual that wants to know what were, what was happening in, you know, in that year, uh, in the panhandle of Texas. Uh, so, but you have to position an organization in order to receive that. And so that's, both technology, mm -hmm. but it's also space. Um, and so we do have a 92 year old building, which is a great building, a fascinating building, but it is also one that, uh, the Texas A&M university system is saying, okay, how do we invest in that? Because at some point, you know, I would assume PPHM needs to have a very efficient, modern building alongside it's existing, whatever that looks like, right. but there needs to be some, forethought and really investment in that. And I think that's why partnering with WT being a part of WT for about a hundred years is, is such a benefit for the museum. But you know, it is, we, we need kind of everybody rowing in the same direction saying, yeah, we, yeah. we do need to receive that future. And you can only store so many saddles. You can only store so many saddles. There are a lot and they take well, up space. And you know, again, if you had a curator on here, they would say, you know, they are, um, responsible for past decisions or indecision as well. Uh, same with me in my seat, you know, I'm, I'm responsible. I, great people uh, held the seat that I sit in. I'm grateful for them, but you know, like everyone, I got to say, how do I leave this in a better position mm -hmm. in 10 years or, you know, if I'm still there or not or whatever, I need to be able to hopefully, um, leave a footprint that they say, well, okay, that person at least started, started the ball rolling in the right direction, uh, for these future challenges that we need to need to overcome. You didn't grow up in this area, but yeah. you are intimately involved in telling the story of this area. Yeah. I, I think of museums as a, a storytelling yeah. device. Um, yeah. Or memories, right? Yeah. We memories. get to hold people's memories and trust. Yeah. yeah. Tell me, tell me what you've learned as I guess a newcomer, what you've learned about this area, about its people, uh, about maybe how the history kind of impacts who we are today. Yeah, I think uh, one indelible mark, obviously, is uh, the closing of the West here and the clash of cultures. I really have turned through many pages and uh, been honored to be able to be in front of a lot of objects that we have in the collection that speak to that. You know, it, it was a volatile place mm -hmm. not long ago. And but there's also interesting kind of glimmers of hope. You know, you you think of of course, the, the famous individuals, the Quanta Parkers of the world and the Charles Goodnights who really had to overcome a lot. You know, we have three headdresses. We have Santanta, Kiowa individual, Big Tree, another Kiowa individual, and uh, Quanta Parkers. Those are three of several uh, war bonnets that we have. And they really do tell a fascinating and, and sad story about uh, the native populations that lived in this region. One committed suicide, one died of old age in captivity. And then Quanta Parker kind of represents for the Comanche people uh, the ability that he had to reinvent himself, mm -hmm. which maybe regrettably so. Yeah. 
but it's fascinating just that in this little area, you've got that story, right? And thousands besides. And so I think it's just a, it's a region of reinventing, right? It's, it's never, you can never put a punctuation mark on the end of kind of the panhandle of Texas. It's just people have to continue to reinvent themselves and learn how to innovate and overcome. Um, and you can see that nowadays too. I, the people that live in this area, pretty incredible. I, I find that every day, people innovating, trying to overcome, trying to do something in this place that's maybe never been done. So this is an ad for attorney Dean Boyd, but it's also a personal endorsement. My son Owen was in a pretty bad wreck at Texas A&M right after we dropped him off for his sophomore year of college. The wreck wasn't his fault, but he got broadsided by another driver, which rolled his car and Owen had to climb out the sunroof. He walked away from it. We're so thankful for that, but his car was totaled and it left Owen with a shoulder injury. So one of our first calls was to Dean Boyd's office. Dean had been a guest on this podcast back in 2019. I knew about his story, but it wasn't until Owen became a client that I really understood what he does and how meaningful it is. Working with his office throughout that process was amazing. They treated Owen right. They answered our questions. They made the whole process seamless and were able to negotiate a settlement that covered our son's medical bills and satisfied all of us. So for us as parents, Dean's office was a lifeline during a really stressful period. I just can't say enough good things about the law office of attorney Dean Boyd. If you've been hurt in a wreck, call him at 806-242-3333 or visit deanboyd.com. I'm really thankful for Dean Boyd and thankful for his support of Hey Amarillo. Okay, I'm back with Andrew Hay. Uh, Andrew, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. I'm assume you're aware of that. <laughs> uh, on the WT campus, it's the largest history museum in Texas, and I usually will tell my guest about something interesting in the collection, but you know more than I do, so I want you to finish this sentence. Its collection includes what? Oh, man. Probably, you know, I think of the new bison exhibit we have up at the museum, and it has... Look, I can... I can I'm biased, right? Yeah, sure. It probably has one of the most incredible cross-section of bison-related objects, maybe in the nation. I was astounded. I, I had the pleasure of helping that put that exhibit together. And when you do a, a search function of bison mm-hmm. in the PPHM collection, it returned just incredible items from prehistoric all the way up to modern. And I would encourage people to come see the exhibit. But within that exhibit, there's really one fairly poignant piece uh in that exhibit and that is a daily calendar it's a kiowa daily calendar it's about 60 feet long but it's rolled up to one section it was when the kiowa people were um, taken to the reservation they would keep a daily calendar and it has a red bison on it. it has lots of symbols but there's a red bison on it and that symbolizes it was june in the 1880s it was the last time they saw a bison in the wild wow and so really a poignant kind of into near into the species of the bison, mm-hmm. what it meant to people. And so, um, of course there's great conservation efforts through, through individuals, but that, that to me is, is a pretty special item in the collection of PPHM. Okay. And that collection was enough to capture the attention of, let's say Ken Burns. Yeah, like that, that's right. Know? Yeah. Ken Burns came to the museum and did a lot of his, um, research for his program, his most recent program. Okay. Well, you can see the bison exhibit, which I recommend uh, at the museum and learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay. 
First question, when you think of Amarillo and Canyon 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Man. I hope for a few things. I hope one, as the city seems to continue, uh, Amarillo continues to grow into the wind southwest, and it seems like Canyon's growing north, uh, that there's some concerted city planning. You know, I hope mm-hmm. there's a master plan. Um, everybody likes their green spaces and some forethought in there. Um, I'd say the other is, I think there's some educational challenges in our town that I'm, I'm hoping are overcome. And there's some dynamic thinking on that and, and some good solutions. Yeah. And I think both of those are impacted by the way the cities yeah. are growing. That's um, right. I mean, when you think about Amarillo and Canyon meeting at some point, yeah. that's less about maybe the cities and more about the counties are, yeah. are in charge of a lot of that space at this point. That's right. Uh, and then there's, there's complicated uh, educational stuff because mm-hmm. a lot of the growth is going into the Canyon school district. Yeah. So you're right. Um, yeah. I'm, I hope they're smart people. Yeah, there are <laughs> thinking forward it. about those things. Yes, absolutely. Because uh, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? This is going to sound bad because I, I mean I stop at one every day, but gas stations. Mm-hmm. I think there's one on every corner. I get it. If I were in the business, I understand. But it seems like if there's an empty lot on a corner of the loop, it's it'll be a gas station. Must be a good business because yeah, it absolutely. continues to. Uh, to lead to growth and, and look, I'm a hypocrite. I go through that drive-through and get a Coke or whatever. So, <laughs> okay, what does this area not have enough of? I would say green spaces and gardens. Okay, uh, I wish there was a little more beautification. I know that's hard to accomplish. You probably need to look into some water catchment uh, processes, but I want some more. A little green space would be nice here and there. Okay, I agree with that. Um, okay, this is a question just for you because I know you have access. What's your favorite artifact at the museum? And it, it doesn't have to be one that everybody else gets to see. I know you get well, to look the you easy, know, behind yeah, the closed doors oh sometimes. There, there, it, it is overwhelming the incredible things that we get to care for at the museum. Well, you I, only have to choose from about 3 million yeah, artifacts, right? I'm, I'm going to choose one that uh, is not on public display currently, and it maybe sounds mundane, but the story that I've created in my mind uh, makes it very special. There is a homespun dress from the 1800s that we have in the collection. And the woman that wore it wore out the knees so much that she created more material to sew on. Hmm. And those are even worn through. And so just, you know, I just create that story in my mind. It's a very poignant item that speaks to all that it takes to, to live here. She worked very hard. Uh, in yeah. her life and so much that she had to replace that dress a few times. And I think just that's a wonderful symbol of, of I think what it took for those homesteaders early on to live here. So that, that to me is a pretty special item. I get, I get that sort of feeling um, in pioneer town, you know, when you get to the back of it mm-hmm. and there's that cabin and you're reading mm-hmm. about the cabin, you see the interior and you know, yeah. it's about a, eight by 12 foot yeah. space. And then it says yeah. three families sheltered yeah. here during the Indian <laughs> right. attacks of you right. know, whatever. And, and right. I just always think, holy cow. Cause yeah. you, you put yourself in that situation yeah. and you think, all right, what if me and my kids and our <laughs> two friends are all kind of yeah. crammed in here thinking we're going to die at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Those, was... those emotions, like it, it's weird how the, the artifacts can, uh, can have an emotional component, yeah. how you can kind of put yourself in that situation. Well, and, and speaking of uh, Pioneer Town, you know, that's a great theory of what museums are, right? They're creating the conditions necessary for people to make it 
meaningful and in, interpretive decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, someone might look at what you just said and go, oh, that's interesting. I don't really care. But, you know, you go, wow, oh, man, I can't imagine my family yeah. in there. I mean, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. So like, I, I, I'm like, oh, that's a story. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, and there's millions of those stories, mm-hmm. you know, and those memories that we, again, get to care for, for the families and the people that have lived here. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I'm going to say Palace, but specifically the Palace in Canyon. Since I commute every day from Amarillo down to Canyon, um, get to run over to that uh, Palace location every once in a while. Love it. It's cozy. And uh, I haven't found a better mocha. Okay. I don't know that I've had a mocha there. Oh, really? So you got to try it. That's good it's to know good. then. Uh, what's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Uh, restaurant El Tejivan. So right by Tascosa. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, those tacos are unreal. I think they're the best tacos I've ever had. Okay. Yeah. What's the most underrated thing about living in this area? Uh, I think like we were talking about, I think the history, I think really, uh, I know many, many people that do not even know their own history here and it's extremely underrated. And the history here is as dynamic as anywhere in the nation. Uh, in my mind, uh, it, it's maybe it's not as old, but that's, right. that's part of the incredible aspect of, living in this, this region for people for the past 15,000 years, you know, and what it's taken to live here. And I can't think of more interesting topic for people to engage with. If you live here, it's closer to, and, and I think that that makes it like generationally, Yeah, the ancient history of this area, you know, <laughs> it didn't change, you know, right. until like the 1860s right. or something. So we're just a few generations yeah. away. I go and I see the, the petroleum exhibit or I read about mm-hmm. the dust bowl and like, mm-hmm. My grandmother and grandfather lived that. Yeah. And so I can take their stories and compare it to these things. And, mm-hmm. and so it has a little bit more meaning mm-hmm. than just seeing a, you know, a 900-year-old church building in Scotland. Which is neat. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. And, and I miss those old buildings every once in a while. But there is, again, something very accessible to what we have here. So I'd say the history of this area is pretty underrated. Okay. Uh, and when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Gosh, it's probably been four or five years. All right. I took a friend there. Uh, and they, you know, it was good. It was good. But, you know, I guess it, I, I keep thinking, well, I, you know, I can get a good steak over here. That's well, closer yeah, to home. But yeah, it's been a little good bit. steak or steak with some spectacle attached that's right. to it. And you know, <laughs> that's right. sometimes that's it's, right. They're doing it right. You want all of it. Yeah. It's great. It's great. But it's been a little while. I should probably go pay it a visit. Okay. Uh, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Uh, I'm going to be greedy and do two real quick, okay. but I'll take half as much time. Uh, I'll do Refugee Language Project. All right. um, love what Dr. Pennington's doing there to uh, open doors with language for displaced peoples mm-hmm. in our community. I think. Former guest on this podcast. Good, fact, so. good man. Yeah, love what they're doing. Uh, really love what they're doing. Uh, second would be Oaks Christian Academy. Okay. Uh, it, it's My kids do not go there, but I uh, have a lot of friends who have kids that go there, and it's just neat to see... Uh, an entity taking young people through the trivium and kind of the classics and classical education. And um, it's pretty incredible to see uh, what they're doing there. It's, it's okay. pretty impactful. I, I'm, I'm a big fan. All right. Dr. Andrew Hay, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I Jason, appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Andrew for the interview. Of course, you can find out more about the museum at panhandleplains.org. Thanks also to attorney Dean Boyd for supporting the podcast and to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. 
Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Jason Burr, Cindy Graham, Wes Reeves, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 335. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.